You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. Hey friends, so glad that you've joined us online. Uh, Today what I want to do is I want to walk through kind of a biblical perspective of this massive topic uh, called uh, uh, a biblical response or uh, a biblical perspective to the Black Lives Matter movement and cultural Marxism. So this is like one of those messages you, you literally might want to grab a dictionary, definitely your Bible, and, uh, and get ready. Uh, so, you know, the question's been asked is why, why address a topic like this? Uh, I'd say, you know, first of all, it's, it's not out of routine for me as a Bible teacher, preacher, to address cultural topics from time to time. I can recall several years ago with uh, the major shooting that happened in a, in a nightclub down in Orlando, and it was labeled the Orlando Massacre, where a guy came in in, a, in an act of evil and unleashed a fury of bullets on uh, innocent people. And many of those people uh, were uh, in same-sex relationships. And I spoke up in that, in that time because there was so much uh, kind of whiplash going on in the Christian community about how to address that. Some calling it an act of God and God was punishing them uh, for their sins and their lifestyles. And I simply spoke up on that topic and said, you know, it's an act of evil uh, to take the life of another person's life, regardless of their lifestyle, their beliefs, that's an act of evil. And so in in a manner uh, such as that, I want to be able to pause for a moment and address uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, as its ideology, cultural Marxism, as it relates to the Bible. So, you know, uh, recently in our culture, we've seen a massive rise in these racial tensions, and we as a church have responded uh, by engaging the subject, and by God's grace, we tackled this topic uh, in the right time, which this message series was planned more than a year ago, and it just so happened to be at this time. So I, we find this fittingly appropriate to, to, to communicate and respond to some of the racial tensions that are going on in our culture. And so with that being said, we felt like the need would be to respond in that. And so what we did as a church is we gathered some of our, our top leaders, uh, one of our elders, uh, one of our pastors, and other uh, ministry leaders in our kids program and our youth program who were African-Americans, black men and women, and ask them to join us for that discussion. So if you have not yet seen that, I would encourage you to go back, watch that, and hear, because it did uh, uh, the white majority of our church a great deal of good to listen and to learn about their experience of, of racism or discrimination in their own lives. It did me a great deal of good. And so in that, I, I want you to know where we're coming from. It's challenged our church, these racial tensions have, challenged our church to engage in conversation, engage in issues that perhaps we were not uh, paying attention to, and, and we've done that. And so recently I was in, uh, uh, w- in my son's bedroom, we're playing Madden football, 
enjoying a time together like we do get on some time on the Xbox with my boy. And there's a Black Lives Matter uh, banner that comes up at the bottom. And I, I say something to him about it. And he responds with not knowing a whole lot about the organization and then says, you know, well, it's kind of a good thing. And, and, and that's a pretty typical response I've heard. And to be honest with you at that time, I didn't know a whole lot about the Black Lives Matter movement. But what I did know is that this, this movement is making a message all over the media, from the gaming rooms in our homes uh, to, to, the, to, to the corporate rooms adopting the Black Lives Matter uh, logos, to our sports teams, to all across the media, there is this messaging that's going on. And I would say this, is that what we did as a staff is we paused for a moment and went straight to the source of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement website, which I would encourage you to log on and check it out. And we looked at their beliefs. And today what I want to do is I want to address those uh, beliefs from a biblical perspective. We looked at those beliefs as a staff, and to be honest, we were shocked. We, we, we grew in a great concern for um, just the movement agendas. And so, but to say this before those of you who might have supported this movement in the past or think it's a great movement, let me make some acknowledgments personally and ask you to hang with me. If you call yourself a Christian, I ask you as a, to, to hang with me as a brother in Christ or as a pastor or as an overseer, to hang with me as I make some personal acknowledgments about perhaps some of the good things that have come out of these racial tension times for me personally, and then we'll get into addressing it uh, as a movement. But first of all, I want to say, in light of all that's happened in our culture, I acknowledge for me that in times of past, in my personal history, I have failed to mourn with those who are mourning, as specifically the black community on issues such as injustice to God's word, uh, it, it, as, as Romans 12, 15 says, mourn with those who mourn. To be honest with you, I have not engaged that as much as I should have. And when injustice is done and I see it on TV and the news, I have, I admit and I acknowledge, I have failed to mourn with those who are mourning as much as I should have. Furthermore, I, I acknowledge personally that I'm, I'm convicted by scripture about issues of weightier things, weightier matters of the Christian faith, such as justice and mercy. Like Jesus says in Matthew 23, 23, when he, he blasts the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his days, he says, you've done all these other great things, but you've failed to, to, to take into matter and to consideration these weightier matters, such as mercy and justice. I acknowledge that. I acknowledge that I have not weighed into that and I'm gonna help you walk with me in that to understand justice from a biblical perspective, uh, not just social justice as a cultural perspective. Furthermore, I acknowledge that there is injustice in our world towards blacks. I acknowledge that there is racism towards blacks. I acknowledge that there is discrimination towards blacks. You couldn't listen to the panel of leaders in our own church and deny what they were telling you or thinking they're fabricating it or uh, oversensitive. It's real. There is a real racial bias as well for blacks in our country. I as well acknowledge and understand there's a tension and a frustration within the black community. And um, many feel that uh, they've been relegated in our history just simply to a black history month 
I acknowledge that frustration and I see the need for it to be uh, the black American to have their history woven into all of our history. I acknowledge that. I acknowledge that Christian seminaries uh, should have taken a greater effort to ensure that black men and women were being equipped theologically. I can think of so many God-honoring good seminaries that missed it, that should have engaged years before they, before they did. I acknowledge as well that I have failed to set, see the unique contributions to theology by blacks on issues such as social or political issues from a biblical perspective. I think the black preacher plays a vital role as a key link in American society to help us understand beyond big theological topics such as substitutionary atonement or justification, but seeing the implications of the gospel message reach far beyond these issues of simply forgiving a sinner and giving him eternal life, but seeing the implications of how it plays out in the social everyday life, the relational life, and specifically in injustice. I acknowledge the patriotism of many blacks in American history as blacks have fought in every American war for their country and yet for years have been denied the honor, the dignity, the respect and recognition they deserve as citizens of this country. I acknowledge that the rights of our citizenship and the vision of the Declaration of Independence for life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness has not been experienced by millions of blacks at least in American history. I acknowledge that the strength and the dignity of black Americans in our country have endured incredible hardships and should be applauded for their transition from African freedom to American slavery, from the transition of American slavery to American freedom during the reconstruction period, from the transition from the South to the North during World War uh, I and following, from the transition from segregation to integration during the civil rights movement. I acknowledge this. And I think, my goodness, have, has the black people of our country gone through so much and endured so much and, and yet still so strong in so many regards. I acknowledge as well that the Black Lives Matter movement has brought a national awareness to racism and injustice in our country and has challenged our whole world to face it with the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. These are just a few. I acknowledge that. However, I, I, I do acknowledge that racism does exist in our country, but I do not believe it is either safe or sound to blame it on the system or the structure Rather, I believe we must blame racism on sin. Uh, while there is room for reform in our law, we need not a revolution in our country, but a reformation of the heart turning back towards God. So I want to look towards what the Black Lives Movement uh, stands for and warn you and caution you before you jump in. I was talking to one of my friends the other day um, that's involved in the Black Lives Matter movement, a man whom I would say is deeply Christian, loves Jesus, loves his Bible, loves his family. And I say to him, why are you a part of this movement? He says, because of the statement, Black Lives Matter. That's perhaps the most biblical line in anything that they do is Black Lives Matter. Of course they matter. 
If you saw last week the, the, the teaching on the Imago Dei, the Latin phrase for made in the image of God, all people matter. And in saying all people matter, just let me help you educate my white friends for a moment, is when you say that it somehow in some way, and I understand it belittles the concept that black lives uh, 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 don't matter. It, it belittles them in a sense of saying, well, black lives matter haven't mattered as much in the past. We're just saying it matters now. And I think we can agree with that. Black lives do matter. However, in the statements of what they are saying, it's important to know that most of the people that are involved in the Black Lives Matter movement perhaps don't have a clue. Like I said, I was talking to my black friend, um, Christian friend, and he said, I believe probably 60% of the people that are involved in the Black Lives Matter movement have no clue of the ideology that they hold to. No clue of the agenda that they hold, the political agenda that they have but they care for black people. They care for civil rights. They, click, they care for justice. And so with that being said, I see the great need right now for the church to clarify what exactly does it stand for. And if you do go into that movement as a Christian, you've got to go as a missionary. Rooted deeply in biblical truth uh, to represent to show and to share the love of Jesus Christ, and you hold exclusively to the Christian historical doctrines and beliefs for centuries uh, that has been upheld by black and white in all other races to the Orthodox Christian faith. And that's gonna be a challenge. And it'll cause controversy if you choose to do that. But let's look at the movement. Um, this is, a, I'm going to the media just for a moment, but they say this, that we are trained Marxists. Uh, according to New York Post, they say, we are trained Marxists. We are superversed on sort of ideological theories. Um, and I think that we are really, what we've really tried to do is to build a movement that could be utilized by many, many black folk. Um, this is Patrice Cullors who is uh, being interviewed in this deal. And she begins to out, kind of lay out there for the public to see that there is an absolute a uh, uh, Marxist perspective. So what is Marxism? So now we're going into uh, sociology, anthropology, uh, uh, history, the whole nine yards. Marxism goes back to the 19th century to a man by the name of Karl Marx and Frederick Engel, who argued that sociology and anthropology could be best understood by understanding class systems. So the, the class systems are, that we know now as lower class, upper class, middle class, this, this is what we would understand it as today. In essence, what they were teaching was the idea that all social conflicts came down to class struggles, the poor against the rich, the lower class being oppressed, the upper class being the oppressor. So this is where you get ideas like Robin Hood. You steal from the rich, give to the poor. There's a conflict. And what they're saying in, in classical Marxism is that all conflicts in society can be brought down to class structures. And much of that has to do with economics, uh, with money. But later, Marx and others argued that there would need to be some sort of revolution, the poor overthrowing the wealthy in order to gain a, a better utopian world. Um, if, if peace was ever to evolve, there had to be a, a revolution in a sense. 
And later, as Marxism kind of marched into the American culture through universities, professors, and politics, the ideas expanded from class to culture. And so now it's not just dealing with the oppressors as the uh, wealthy, powerful, elite majority. Now it's dealing with gender, race, and so on. And so cultural Marxism is the vibe, it's the message, it's the mantra for the Black Lives Matter movement. So now the, 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 the change between classical Marxism and cultural Marxism is classical Marxism is now pointing the finger as the oppressor is not simply as those that are wealthy, but now it's pointing the finger at those that are in the majority in race and in gender. So there is a, in a sense, what you will see and have seen perhaps is a bit of a revolution, a fight in these circles. So there's been in this fight, all sorts of categories, divisions, and agendas made. And I'll just talk about them just for a moment and then we'll get further into it. But this ideology, cultural Marxism, actually perpetuates the notion that there is a need to overthrow the oppressive majority, which are the powers in our country, whereby division lines are not limited to class, but increasingly to cultural issues that are seen at the center, and they seem to center around race, gender, and as well as political parties as well. The cultural Marxists teach that the minority are the underprivileged, that the minority are the oppressed. These categories of privileged and oppressive categories uh, include the following, but they're not limited to them. Being male in American culture today means that you are in a class that is privileged and oppressive, according to cultural Marxism. If you are a man and you, you, are, uh, you are not only privileged against every other person on the planet, you're also in a category that's labeled oppressive. Additionally, if you are heterosexual, this puts you in the majority class, which means that you're privileged and you're oppressive as well. Meaning if you have a relationship between another, uh, the, a different sex, heterosexual relationship, you're in the majority, therefore you're oppressive, therefore you're privileged, and, and you, you, you're subject. There's a bias towards you. Additionally, being cisgender. Here's where I told you, you need your little dictionary. And I had to, man, when I studied the Black Lives Matter movement, it's like I had to get with it. Some of these folks are deeply educated. I'm, that's great. Uh, they're using language and they're going back into sociology, psychology, uh, history, anthropology, you name it, to dig in and to build this movement. But being cisgender, that means that if your sexual identity corresponds with your birth sex, in other words, I was born a man and I, I was born male and I'm going to stay uh, male my whole life because that's the way God made me. That's because God, the way we studied the Imago Dei, made in the image of God. Being cisgender, if you're cisgender, you identify as your birth sex, that means that you're in the majority, you're privileged, you're oppressive as well. If you're able bodied, meaning that you're not disabled, and that means you're privileged and you're perhaps oppressive as well. Being white absolutely means that you're privileged. It's called white privilege. And I think it, I'm reading a book on white privilege because I want to know the arguments on both sides. I, I want to listen. I want to hear. 
But if you're white, you are actually, there's a bias against you that you are oppressive and privileged as well. If you're native born, you are in an oppressive or privileged class, according to them. If you're being, if you're pretty, there's pretty privilege now. It's ranked as you have a privilege. If you're just a pretty person, you're more apt to get uh, 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 elevated and the uh, next person that's not so pretty will be discriminated. And so now there is divisions and categories on what's called pretty privilege. So all you pretty people out there, you're in the pretty privilege class. So basically, if you are the majority is what it's saying, if you're on the majority side on anything with cultural Marxism, then you are part of an oppressive, privileged system, structure, classifications. In other words, if you're not like them, you're wrong, and now it's time to fight. That, that's a revolution. That's cultural Marxism. It, it's a, where the minority population in any category, wealth, race, gender, in anything, orientation, anything, they need to overthrow the entire majority to create a new normal. It's, it's just a very radical approach in understanding. These are the ideologies that the co-founder says, this is what we're doing. We're trained Marxists. So what is the agenda from a cultural Marxist perspective is to change the majority in our country. That means if you're heterosexual, you can be homosexual. That means if you're cisgender, you can become transgender. If you're white, you should absolutely seek diversity. In essence, the view is suggesting that if you're a part of the majority, you're on the wrong side. And furthermore, if you don't become one of them, you're going to have to affirm them, not simply accept them. They do this by taking a minority of culture that is seeking alternative lifestyles and they're seeking to normalize it and mobilize it. And this is what she, uh, she even said as the founder, we're creating an ideology that can be utilized by many, many, and in her words, black folks. Um, this is why we need education. This is why we gotta, as Christians, believe God when he says stuff like this. Hey, first commandment, number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. The mind is the greatest asset in all of Christianity and all of Christendom from all times is the mind. And in an issue like this, we're challenged to engage the mind. So let's stop talking about my pontifications about the issue, and let's look straight at the Black Lives Matter website just for a moment, what they believe. Um, you can go there on the website yourself, blacklivesmatter.com, and what they believe, and you can find this out. They say, uh, we make space for transgender brothers and sisters to participate and to lead. Um, transgender, for those of you that are still a little slow in this conversation, transgender are those that identify as a gender that are different from their birth sex. In other words, they just identify different from however God created them. They're going to identify very different. Um, they furthermore, they say we dismantle cisgender. That means they're seeking to dismantle. That means to break down, to pull apart. If you ever dismantled anything, this is what they want to do, dismantle cisgender, meaning identity that corresponds with birth sex. So they want to dis dismantle that privilege, that concept, and uplift black folk, trans folk, especially black trans women. Um, examples of this, I recently heard a story about a girl who uh, went to a school, and she's raised by uh, lesbian parents, 
And uh, she goes to the school here in our district and says, I don't want to be a girl. I'm a boy. Now you need to call me a boy name and I need to go to the boys' bathrooms. And it created a major upheaval. And uh, it didn't gain a lot of traction in the news uh, because COVID-19 broke out. And then that became the new uh, media piece for, for a long time. But these kind of things happen. Uh, another story I heard recently was a guy who goes to work and he announces that he now wants to be a woman. So he goes to his boss, visits the HR department and the entire uh, group there at the company has to uh, announce now that this man is a woman and shall uh, from this point forward be addressed as a woman and has every uh, as, uh, the responsibility and any action against him is discrimination. These are tough issues, I get it. Uh, we dismantle, they say, we dismantle the patriarch practice. That means male headship, leadership, like the Bible teaches, they, they dismantle patriarchal practices that requires mothers to work double shifts so that they can mother in private even as they participate in public justice work. There's all sorts of problems here and I don't have time to get into the depth of them, but I'll just continue on. Continuing, they say we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. That means basically a male and female married to one another who wanna raise their children as a family union, unit. There's major problems with that. We'll address that in a minute. Uh, we foster a queer and affir affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. Say that five times in a row. Heteronormative thinking is a worldview that promotes homosexuality as the normal or preferred sexual orientation. So they are trying to free themselves from this grip. And the challenge with that is that this is how God has created us to be in heterosexual relationships. And so they're seeking to free themselves from who? The oppressors. And it is a political movement. Those of you who'd say, it's not just a political movement. No, it's a political movement. It's a political movement with crazy ideologies. And, and so, and, and they say this, a CNN interview, so... If you think that this is coming off as too conservative or too uh, right-wing or left-wing or whatever, I mean, CNN, I think, would, would do a good job to represent this movement. They say uh, this when interviewed. Uh, at, they ask Patricia Cullors about this, what their agenda is. And she says this, what we're going to push for is to move to get Trump out. So whether you like Trump or not, he's the president of the United States. What you need to know is that there is a political agenda. I've heard from many that it didn't start out like this strong political movement to try to overthrow and get the president out of office, but it is that now. And so you have to know that. So let me answer the question with biblical response. What is wrong with the Black Lives Matter from a biblical perspective? I would say number one is trying to dismantle one's God-given identity. You and me as a, a father or a mother, as, as parents, we've got to know that this concept is seeking and trying to intentionally dismantle one's God-given identity. This is going to create massive gender confusion questions. Bible says, so God created man in his own image, meaning man, meaning plural, male and female, in his own image, that means like God in many ways, 
in goodness and reflection, and we represent him in the image of God, that is the Latin phrase, the Imago Dei, he created him male and female, he created them. God clearly makes our first parents, and by the way, Adam and Eve, their blood, if you were to go on ancestry.com and have unlimited power, every single person on the planet would root back to their first father was Adam and their first mother was Eve. And so we've got their blood flowing through our veins, every person on the planet for all times, first parents. And the Bible says is that he's created them distinct and different, male, female, very different. And what the Black Lives Matter movement is seeking to do is to absolutely dismantle this by attacking the cisgender uh, ideology. Secondly, what's wrong with Black Lives Matter from a biblical perspective? It's, a, it's trying to break down the family. The family is at the crux. I'm a, that's one of my values. This is where this bothers me perhaps the most because I'm going to raise my kids and they're going to know God made them a boy. They're going to stay a boy. They're, God made them a girl. They're going to stay a girl. And we're going to celebrate the differences and how God's created different people with differences. And we're not going to try to blend them and make them the same. But now with this whole family breakdown, this concept of breaking down the family, the patriarchal system, breaking down the nuclear family, man, this is really tough. The Bible clearly says right after he creates male and female, he tells them in Genesis 1.28, God said to them, Adam and Eve, go be fruitful. That means make babies, fill the earth, multiply. That means multiply the human species, fill the earth. And you and I are the product of that. And this procreation mandate is the basic building block, by the way, for all of our world. The very, at the heart of a, of a community is a home, and in that home is a family. And at the heart of a community, as a community grows, there you have the city, there you have the country, and the nucleus of that building block is the family. And so when we think about this, I mean, research about the nuclear family, let me just speak to this just for a moment. But I found some research that's interesting is research from single parent homes versus two parent homes. Meaning if, if you wanna break down the nuclear family, this is what research says is gonna happen. Children from single parent homes are five times more likely to commit suicide. Let me say that again. Children from single parent homes are five times more likely to commit suicide. Suicide's on an all time high right now. Um, this breakdown of the nuclear family, taking dad out of the home, uh, breaking down a, 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 hus- a, a, a father and a mother um, is going to break down this family even further. And research says that if that happens, a single parent household, they're five times more likely to commit suicide, six times more likely to be in poverty, nine times more likely to drop out of high school, 10 times more likely to abuse chemical substances, 14 times more likely to commit rape, 20 times more likely to end up in prison, 32 more times likely to run away from home. And oftentimes those kids are picked up and then they're sex trafficked and it's terrible. So what I'm saying is it's an attack on our family. Furthermore, um, what's wrong with the Black Lives Matter movement from a biblical perspective is that it's trying to reverse the roles in marriage. Ephesians 5, uh, 22 through 23 gives us an outline for, for what this looks like. It says that there's a wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself its savior. Let me explain to you what this means and doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that husbands and wives aren't equal in value. No, God created a husband and a wife to be equal in value, different in role. In a theological conversation, it's called complementarian theology, that a man and a woman in a marriage relationship complement one another in an incredible way. And they're equal in value, yet different in role. This doesn't mean as well that the wife can't work. Uh, This doesn't mean as well that a, a wife can't exercise leadership. This concept of submission uh, doesn't mean that the wife should be a doormat. It means that they need to cooperate, that they need to not compete over headship. Headship is this divine calling on the man in the home to sacrificially love and lead his family. And this attack against the nuclear family to dismantle the nuclear family is seeking to take the man out of the home and leave the kids there with a fatherless generation. This patriarchal system, you can think back in perhaps your family and in times past, patriarchal figures helped shape and build and bring up good and godly families. I've got a black friend of mine who told me, he said, my dad left the home when I was just a kid, but I thank God for a black preacher that stepped into my life, mentored me and raised me up as his own. And then now he's creating that legacy, investing into his kids and saying, I'm not going to leave the home. I'm going to be here with you. This is an absolute reversal of roles and a breakdown of the family. Headship is this divine calling that challenges husbands to serve as providers, protectors, and pastors, spiritual leaders of the family, and to live and to love Jesus and look to him as their example. And submission is a divine calling as well to support, to respect, to defer to, and to uphold the husband's biblical role and responsibility in headship, which is ultimately to serve like Jesus, to sacrificially love his bride, giving up his very life for her. And this movement is seeking to tear apart this patriarchal uh, practice and concept. And so it's a big deal. It is a big deal. Um, There's other issues that I don't even have time to address, but I wanna give you some encouragement, go online. I've written a series of uh, blogs in order to go a little bit further in this conversation and dialogue. And if that's not enough, I can send you more. I wanna encourage you to do that. But you need to know that there is an incredible, um, good and great thing about marriage. Couples who practice their faith, regardless of race, are so much higher to uh, likely to stay married forever, for their lifetime. Uh, According to Brad Wilcox, a leading sociologist, University of Virginia and director of the National Marriage Project, he finds this, that active Protestants, regardless of their race, who regularly attend church are 35% more likely, um, are uh, 35% less likely to divorce compared to those with no affiliation. And then additionally, nominally attending conservative Protestants are about 20% more likely to divorce compared to the secular Americans. The takeaway is this, is that the divorce rates fall down um, when, when the, the, the Christian man and a woman in their marriage relationship are engaging in their faith. 
And so in all this, we've got to understand marriage is at stake, families at stake, identities at stake. And so I want to give you five practical steps kind of in closing. Number one, I just challenge you that you listen before you label. Meaning this, you listen to people. If you've got a friend that's hashtagging Black Lives Matter or posting Black Lives Matter, don't be so quick to jump the gun. Remember what I said, almost 60% of people that are connecting themselves to this movement don't agree with the ideology, perhaps are even unaware of it, don't understand the political agenda. So listen before you label. If someone stands, if someone stands up against the injustice, hashtagging Black Lives Matter or perhaps even marching uh, in the streets, and seeking to advocate for discrimination, don't automatically label them a Marxist. On the other hand, if someone stands up against this cultural Marxism or speaks up against the Black Lives Matter movement, this doesn't mean as well that they are racist and, you are, and, 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 and unwilling to engage on the issues. It means perhaps maybe they're uneducated. It means perhaps uh, maybe they have a, they're, they're identifying with a component of what's truth and they're standing up against it. And so I want to challenge you to not be so quick to label people um, and to build conversation. And that's what we did here at North Valley. We invited that panel up and had this discussion and it's led to great conversations. Uh, I heard one story of a guy, a, a white guy was asking one of a black guy and said, I got a bunch of questions for you. And he said, I'm embarrassed to ask these because I should, I should know this. But he asked them about 20 different questions. And at the end of their conversation, the black guy and the white guy are crying. And then they're laughing and then they're praying. Because there is a level, and I think we ought to acknowledge it, that we don't understand. The Bible says, be slow to speak, be, be quick to listen. So listen before you label people. Number two, I challenge you to go the extra mile. Jesus talked about going the extra mile. If somebody needs you to go one, go two. So go the extra mile. And, and you say, in what areas? Well, first of all, with people. Listen, we love people at this church. We love people from all lifestyles, all colors, all creeds. That's Christian. That's loving your neighbor. Go, go the extra mile with people. Uh, listen before you label. Secondly, go the extra mile with, mile with the Bible. Don't, the, the canon of scripture is here. Don't look to books. Don't look to blogs as your canon of scripture, as your authority of information. Look to the Bible. Go the extra mile. Uh, thirdly, I challenge you to go the extra mile on issues. Stop engaging unless you first engage people and the Bible and have a good understanding of these issues. Don't, don't just spout out your beliefs or your ideas without trying to at least wrestle with the issues. I mean, to be honest, like I told you earlier, like when there's a, an in killing or an injustice in, in the black community, I acknowledge I failed to engage that. So I call my black pastor buddies now and I say, tell me these issues. Well, let's talk about this. And then they tell me, I'm like, man, that's just wrong. I'm sorry. You, I'm sure that affects you in many ways in the black community around the country. So I challenge you to engage the issues, read the websites, understand the arguments, learn cultural Marxism, look at Marxism, engage the issues. 
Uh, thirdly, I challenge you, practice what you believe. That means that you speak truth, friends. You speak truth, but you do it in love, according to Ephesians 4.15. It means practice what you believe. We believe that the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor. Let's do that. We believe that the first commandment is to love God, and we're to do it with all of our mind, according to Matthew 23, 37. Additionally, we have to practice what we believe by doing this, what Romans 12, 15 says, said, mourn with those who mourn. When there's sadness, don't just move past it. Engage it. And there's an emotional ignorance, I think, that's in our country about learning how to posture yourself. Let me just encourage you real quick. Emotional intelligence actually has a stronger value in the workforce in today's world than, than, than intellectual intelligence, IQ. And so you, you need empathy, friends. You need compassion, friends. You need Romans 12, 15. Mourn with those who mourn. Weep with those who weep. And Ecclesiastes says there's a time for all this stuff. There's a time to rejoice. There's a time to fight. There's a time to, to mourn. And, and we need to mourn with those who mourn. We need to practice what we believe. Fourthly, I challenge you, vote your values. We're in that season. For the state of Arizona, vote your values. What do you value? What's your authority? Is the authority the Bible? Do you hold to Christian beliefs? Vote your values. Don't just disengage. That's the dumbest thing that you could do. You're handing over your country to anybody if you do that. We have a unique freedom in this country to vote and elect our people. And what we do on a local level impacts the state level and impacts our, our country. And so you need to vote your values. I'm proud that our church come uh, November, we're gonna open up our church and invite people to come for polling and be able to uh, vote. We need to, as Christians, we need to engage politics. Why? Because God does love the government. And I'm gonna speak on that next week. He's ordained and, and created government and law and enforcement. Can it be abused? Absolutely. Why? Because of sin but we need to vote our values. We have a Christian responsibility as citizens, not only in this world, but in a kingdom perspective so that we can get more kingdom values into earthly context, amen? So vote your values. Number five, I'd say this is trust in God's sovereignty. Trust in God's sovereignty. As I've kind of analyzed the times, I think of times that we're in and I have to remind myself because it's negative. It's, there's darkness, there's division. But no matter what, God's character is unshakable and he's good. I think of the story of Joseph who was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was falsely accused, falsely imprisoned. He was oppressed, but still he made the choice one after another to honor God despite his situation. And then he's promoted. He's promoted the second highest position in all of Egypt. And then when trouble hit, a famine struck in the land and guess who showed up for help? His brothers the very ones who sold him into slavery. And then Joseph comes to this point in his life and with godly wisdom says this, in essence, what you intended for evil, God meant it for good. And here's what I gotta say, friends. We still serve a sovereign God and he can use all sorts of evil to do great deal of good. I pray that happens in your life. I pray that you step into that and claim that. And we serve a sovereign God who can take every form of evil that man has intended on any side and use it for good. 
I know it's done us a great deal of good here at this church to engage, to listen, to learn. I pray that we do that together. Amen? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege, the opportunity, Lord, to teach your word. Lord, I pray that this message comes across and it's received and understood from a biblical perspective. I pray as well, Father, that we would engage. We would be faithful as Christians to love our neighbors. The parable in the Good Samaritan, we'd love those that are least like us. Might we do that? Father, I pray that you give us great wisdom, the wisdom of Solomon, Lord, the wisdom from your truth and your word. Might you grant us that to understand our times and to live appropriately. Father, we thank you for the work that you're doing in our hearts, and may it be in our homes, and may it be in our city, in our country. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey guys, great being with you. I want to encourage you. We're going to continue to worship on together and uh, look forward to the coming weeks ahead. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give today at northvalleychurch.org.